As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So today we have a very special guest, Derek Barnes, who is the National Book Award finalist for his 2022 graphic novel, Victory Stand, Raising My Fist for Justice, which also won the 2023 Yelsa Excellence in Young Adult Nonfiction Award and a Coretta Scott King Award Author Honor. So this book is just beautiful. I highly recommend that our audience buy it and check it out. Like we are excited to hear more about it and about the story behind the book, but also you cannot just through audio get everything that we want you to get out of this. So we want you to go buy the book, see it, read it, and have the, like the way that the story and the illustrations work together to powerfully convey these stories is just awesome. So Derek, we are very excited to have you and hear more about you. First, want to start out the way we typically do by setting aside for a minute the things you've done and just hearing who you are. So could you introduce yourself? Who is Derek Barnes? Sure. Man, first of all, thank you, brothers, for having me on. I appreciate you. So Derek Barnes is I'm a Midwest boy, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. My family was originally from Clarksdale, Mississippi, so I have Mississippi roots. Been started writing early on when I was when I was ten, man. Just been very curious about history. I was like curious about just nonfiction subject matter. I've always been a information junkie, information nerd. Started writing when I was ten. Fell in love with hip hop music, which is my first introduction to poetry and short fiction. Stevie Wonder, remember? You know, I used to copy down Stevie Wonder lyrics and. Just be fascinated in his use of adjectives and the way he expressed emotion. Langston Hughes, probably my first literary figure that I fell in love with. From him, I just kind of pull dialogue and character development. You know, jazz music is a, a very heavy influence from people that are from that area, or from Kansas City. So I've always been fascinated by jazz musicians, you know, Charlie Parker's a Kansas City native. So. I think I infuse all of those things early on to uh, kind of influence my writing style. I write in a very personable but rhythmic kind of kind of style. Graduated from high school and went back to Mississippi, where my roots are from, and attended Jackson State University. 
Met my wife there, fell in love with a girl from Compton, California in Jackson, Mississippi. We've been married for 22 years coming up in May. We have four beautiful sons, Ezra, who was a senior at North Carolina A&T. Solo, who was a freshman at Fayetteville State here in North Carolina. Uh, Silas, who's a junior in high school, he's 16. And our baby boy, Nambi, who is 11. He actually has a basketball game today at 2.30, so I can't wait to go check him out. But uh, yeah, man, my, my whole life is just about my family, man. I sit around my family. I, I have like maybe 14, 15 books in print, all children's books. I've won a few awards. My career, my career started in 2004. It didn't really take off till 2017. So I, I've been grinding for a long time. Book entitled Crown and Ode to the Fresh Cut was like my, this was the book that kicked the door down for me. They won a Newberryana, Coretta Scott King honor, won the Ezra Jack Keats award, won the Kirkus Prize, which is one of the largest American monetary prizes. And I've actually won that twice. So man, for like a 13, 15 year stretch, I, I didn't have anything. I, and, and, and the thing that turned my career around really was me just really realizing who am I actually writing for? And I tell writers that all the time, like figure out who you are writing for. I had a, right before Crown took off 2016, I was in this office and I'm sitting in right now. No books, no desks, it was completely bare. I was, you know, considering quitting, like stop writing. One of my sons came in and I was sitting on the floor working on a book, like my 30th book that nobody wanted. And uh, he was eating an apple. I think he was 10. That was my son's solo. He's like, daddy, you know what you should do? You should write the blackest book ever. And it just sparked something to me, man. Like I was trying to write books for these gatekeepers in the publishing industry, but I had forgotten who my target audience was. And it's mostly black boys and it's black children. Like you have to forget about as a black artist, you are about to fall a activist. So we have to get over that hump and you have to continue to keep in focus who your target audience is. And because there's still a dearth of books that show the humanity and brilliance of black children. I just feel like I'm obligated to do that. And so once I made that switch, man, everything everything opened up for me. Everything opened up for me. I'm just just so grateful to be able to do what I do for a living, man. And again, just glad you guys have me on today. Yeah. You highlight something that I just want to dig into just for a second there with the gatekeeper's mm-hmm. comment. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but just the fact that it's generally, it's like, Old white men control the institutions that control many of these industries. Like there are what five major publishers for books. There are just a few major publishers for music. And so as a black author, there's this like reality of having to kind of write for almost two audiences at once if you want to get by the gatekeepers to get to your audience. And I mean, it just shouldn't be that way because Whenever black people in our culture are given the opportunity to actually just have a voice that is unfiltered by like those white constraints, such good things come out of it. And I just hope that the industry can start to see that pattern that like all these brilliant works that come from just giving black people a microphone and saying like, okay, what do you want to say? And I'm glad to hear that you found a way through that filter and have found a way to say what you wanted to say and that you have had the opportunity to have this grassroots success that just has boiled up around it. I think that's awesome. So tell us a little bit about this story then with Tommy Smith, what kind of inspired 
this project and tell us about how it kind of got kicked off. Sure. Just going back to that book, Crown, Crown and Ode to the First Cut, the book that really sparked my career. Crown was my ninth book. So the prior eight books were published by one of those major five houses. Crown was published by a small imprint outside of Chicago. It's called Agate. And they have been most popular for publishing like cookbooks and biographies, award-winning books nonetheless. But I think that's how I found my pathway to get in. And I, I think a lot of black authors, I think, I think, I think it'd be helpful to target a lot of these small publishing houses because they, they are not as confined as the five big houses are. They will take risks and, and take chances. And the fact that the book won so many awards, really allowed some editors at, at the larger houses to open their arms to me that uh, this could happen with a smaller house. It could happen in one of these larger houses. So in 2018, when all the award ceremonies were happening, my agent took me around to, it was it's the American Library Association conference. It was in the spring. She took me around to all the different houses. And we were like maybe 50 yards away from the W.W. Norton and the Norton Young Readers Table. And my agent asked, hey, I've been offered to find the author to co-write a children's book with the 1968 Olympic Tommy Smith. You think you'd be interested in that? And before I knew it, before I knew it, we were at the Norton table and I, I, I just said yes. And that's, that's exactly how it happened, man. It was just a spur in the moment thing. She knew I would be the right author for this project. And so uh, I guess in two, late 2018, I had a chance to go to Stone Mountain, Georgia, where Dr. Smith now resides beautiful home he and his wife they, they were so gracious and so kind to me and i went down there like three times but that first time was very it was very memorable man because she made she made dinner for me i brought flowers and he took me down to his his man cave where all of his trophies are and all of his fan art and i was really geeked out just to meet this guy because you know before then when you see that 1968 image it looks like two Black Panthers qualified for the Olympic Games, and, and so you know you always have that image. Like this, this is this is a this is a powerful protest image, but you never knew the story behind it. So when I got a chance to sit down with him and take notes, man, after like 20 minutes, I, I put my pad and pencil down, put my I put my phone down, which I I had on record, and I, I just realized, man, this is just a country boy from Texas, man. And he could have easily been my uncle. He could easily be my father. And he was so excited to actually talk about that day. And I thought, I felt like going into it that he would probably be tired of talking about it. But he was so excited to talk about that day. He's a very thoughtful man. He's, he's a gentleman. He's, he's, he's very much into the physiological aspect of athletes and how the human body works. And I, I've learned so much just from touring with him. Again, just realizing that all of us have a God-given ability, and it's up to us to realize how we're going to use our ability to connect with other people, to change the world. He was blessed with the gift of speed, and he had to win that race that day in order to be on that number one podium, in order to raise his fist that day. So I, I realized a lot from working with him about where we are, where we're supposed to be, and how we're supposed to utilize what we've been given in order to change the world. And I, 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 learned, I learned so much about writing this book. It's just been a privilege, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think 
a thread that ties together a couple of things you just said is just that combination of like the hard work that goes in on the front end. Like you had to write all these books and do all this hard work on the front end in order to get that opportunity. The introduction to Tommy Smith kind of was in some ways luck, but it was luck that was built upon all this foundation that you had laid of hard work that you had put in. And same for Tommy Smith, like all the hard work he had to do on the front end to open up the doors for him to have the opportunity to become like this iconic figure that helped to change the world. (laughs) And it was built on this foundation of how many thousands of hours of running. And I think that's just a a powerful reminder to people who are chugging away at their careers or trying to make it to lay that foundation of the hard work that there is like an aspect of luck. It's built on this foundation that you had all this diligence to lay. I think that's really cool testimony to the work that you guys put in. So then you had this time with Tommy Smith. What is something that kind of was different about him and his story than what you... Because I'm sure you kind of looked up his story somewhat beforehand. So going into that and meeting him and hearing it from him, what are some things that were different or that stood out to you? And how did you go about trying to capture some of some of that in your book. I took a I took a ton of notes, man, and he, he even had some handwritten notes that he uh, sent me. So I've I've put those away in a secret location and locked them up. But I also I devoured his uh, his autobiography. It was it's entitled Silent Gesture and I've 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 marked that book up. I bought it digitally and I just kind of consumed his whole life really. We would go out and do speaking engagements, when people would ask him questions, I would jump in and answer. Like I was an expert, you know, on his life. The thing that really ties his story into protests and resistance to the current day athlete, I think, I think he was the first one really to, to uh, sacrifice not only his career, but his whole life in order to use his platform to raise people awareness about racism, racial injustice. I tried to tie in a lot of different events along his own personal timeline, like where he was when he was in high school and college and all these different events. And at the same time, four little girls in Birmingham were killed in a uh, bombing. At the same time, uh, John Lewis, who was not a congressman at the time, walked across the Edmonds uh, Pettus Bridge. At the same time, he was in high school during this time. Uh, Mecca Evers, Mecca Evers was assassinated outside of his home. So. All of these things were kind of building up in him because he, he's from a, a large sharecropping family. There was 12 kids in his, in his family. His, and, his, and his parents never really talked about race. They never talked about politics. But he was a very curious child, very curious young man. And he did a lot of self-study. And so they just kind of met at a certain apex when he, when he arose at San Jose State. And he realized at that moment, the more he learned about his history and the more he realized how his celebrity as an American athlete can both be kind of used in order to bring awareness to these things. During that period of time in the 1960s, he had a ton of black athletes who were using their platforms, you know, Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, Muhammad Ali, obviously, and they knew the power of their platforms that black athletes were not just supposed to be used as entertainment. Like we, like we all come from these same environments where where these lynchings and these bombings are happening. And if we don't utilize our platforms in order to say something, then what good are we? And I, I, I think he realized that at, at the age of 24. 
that day in Mexico City. It, it had obviously led up to that moment, but his life is a perfect example and a perfect tale of, again, how we come to realize what our God-given abilities are supposed to be used for. And uh, he, he, he's, again, he, I, I love hearing him speak because he, he, he reminds you of, of, of that old Southern wise. He really could be a pastor, to be honest with you, but it, it really touches me when, I, when he talks about his sacrifice and the things that he had to go through after the Olympics when he was kind of blackballed, exiled, he couldn't get a job and those things. And that was actually his last race that he ever ran at the age of 24. You know that, that that was one of the things that really blew my mind. I, I I didn't I didn't realize that before I started working on this project. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It was like like that basically he sacrificed his career in order to have that yeah. one moment of protest. Yeah. And it's crazy to me some of the things that were like world bending back then. Like even we recently did an episode on Medgar Evers and him applying to the University of Mississippi was like news, front page news all across the state, just applying to the school. Mm-hmm. Or here, I mean, the fact that for Tommy Smith, it was world changing to raise your fist <laughs> is like, it feels kind of crazy to realize that that would end your career, that the world of that day was so opposed to and part of what was going on there i think was also just international relations it was a global stage america in the cold war was being shamed for its racism and so then this protest was on this world stage to show like we are being persecuted we're not content and tommy smith took off his shoes at the time as like like a symbolic gesture to highlight african american poverty and and it was like this iconic and powerful picture, but then it just the fact that that would end someone's career, the fact that it would be as big of a backlash and this white backlash indignation in response to that is a little bit kind of crazy to wrap my mind around today. But could you like maybe talk a little bit about the world of that day and why that was such a big deal? Yeah, yeah, I was just, I was just, I was just thinking about how, how far have we, have we actually come when Colin Kaepernick is still unemployed? Both. Yeah. Yeah. We're silent, we're, we're silent gestures. And I really believe it. When we first started hearing about Colin Kaepernick and, and why he couldn't get a job, we were blaming the owners of these NFL teams. And I, I, after I, I, I kind of dug into that situation a little bit more, I just kind of realized that those 32 owners are not equipped to face the real issue. And the real issue is American citizens, really. Like, 
the owners are, are trying to win championships, but more so they're trying to make money. And if if they're predominantly white male demographic ticket buyer could care less about uh, Colin Kaepernick protesting police brutality, then they would have signed them. But we're talking about like a like a deeper national issue. The fact that uh, th- there have been NFL athletes who have killed people in DUI accidents, who have beat their wives, who are, have abused their children, and they still play football, and none of the fans care. But this man, Nip, doing the uh, national anthem, and he hasn't played football in almost a decade. So how far have we really come, you know? Yeah. Same thing with yeah, I, the same thing with Dr. Smith. Yeah. Oh, I just I think that's a really good point. I think back about just some of the blatantly racist things that Southern politicians would say back in the sixties. And it's on one level easy to say like that was a terrible person, but then to realize like we're all implicated by that because he's saying that knowing that that's who his voters are going to vote for. Like politicians highlight like what the voter base is wanting. And so like when the politicians would say those racist things, it's like that implicates the entire society that's voting for them. And the same way what you're describing, it's so true that the NFL owners are responding to their demographic and their monetary incentives. And so it, it implicates all of us. It's not just one owner who's a bad actor it like it shines a spotlight on where we're at in this fight to respect dignity of black lives yeah it's powerful yeah i want to talk about the format of this book initially i was thinking of doing a a traditional middle grade novel and then i thought about writing a book in verse but the idea came to me just from researching some graphic novels. I was reading a graphic novel on Frederick Douglass, on Frederick Douglass, a graphic novel on Satchel Page, and then there was a graphic novel called Chinese Born American, which has won a ton of awards. And so I was just trying to figure out format, and the graphic novel format just fit perfectly because the fact that Dr. Smith was once the fastest man on the planet. He was the first person to run a 200 meter race in less than 20 seconds. So I think, I think the format just fit perfectly. And his record stood until like 2010. Yeah. A long time, man. Yeah. Long time for that record to stand. The crazy thing about him breaking the record is he was actually injured in the semifinals. He heard his groin. So I, I didn't know that before I, I did research. He actually shouldn't have even ran that race, but when he was describing to me, and I go back to my notes, and he was describing to me how he was able to recover in less than two hours. He was talking about his body like it was um, a Ferrari. The percentage of acceleration he had to give in certain parts of that 200-meter race when he needed to pull back. And so I used that conversation as uh, opportunity to, I said, I, I need a through line for this for this book. So Instead of instead of telling like a, a straight cradle to current story, I used that 20 second race and I kind of cut it up in blotches and I kind of sparsed it in between tales of when he was growing up in Texas, the sharecropping, all the way to high school and college until I met up with that day in 1968. And so our conversations really helped me to form the format that I want to use. 
I think we did a good job. You know, Dawood did an excellent job of taking the manuscript and just and just making magic. You know, this is my first graphic novel, so like I said, I'm just extremely proud of the work that we did. Mm-hmm. I think you guys objectively did a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Yeah, it's work work to be proud of. And uh, yeah, again, I just really recommend the audience check it out. I mean, you can look and you can preview it on Amazon if you want to read the first few pages on there. And I can't imagine people doing that and not wanting to buy the book from there. Yeah, and you know, one more. Th- I, I get. I guess one more thing about how this book could be used in order to further social justice in this country. I think the book is perfect. It's, it's a young adult book, but I think it could be used in elementary schools, you know, middle schools. Going back to the point that I made, you know, initially about how all of us have God-given abilities. That may be the ability to communicate. It doesn't have to always be a, uh, a performative skill like uh, track and field or being a good vocalist or being able to write, but whatever you've been blessed with, I, I think, first of all, we need to educate ourselves, you know, and the country is, is starting to ban a lot of books in, in, in different states and whatnot. I think children need to, and, and, and also the parents that look, that will take care of these children. You have to, you have to do an excellent job of going outside of the education system, unfortunately, and providing your children with books about the true history of this country. That's the first thing we have to do. And then second, with all that information that you have about the true history of racism in this country, take your God-given abilities, and I don't care if it's at your school or in your neighborhood or citywide, nationally, and, and actually do something. Actually do something. Put all that information, mess with your God-given abilities to work. And that's exactly what Tommy Smith did. So I'm just asking all, all young people, not just to read this book, but to use your God-given abilities, educate yourself, and to make a difference, if, if, if it's just to make a difference where you live, you know, to make things more equitable for everybody. Yeah. There's that, like Gandhi quote, the be the change you want to see in the world. Like you can't, we don't have the power to completely change the world on a dime, but we have the power to live as citizens of a better world, to live as a part of the way that the world should be. And so in whatever spheres of influence we have to like, learn and educate yourself on the shame and brokenness of the past, but in order to start to to change and to live in a better today, a better tomorrow. I think that's powerful. So we're coming close on the end of our time and we always want to close by kind of just hearing you and you kind of just did this. So we just want to draw it out even more, hearing you speak directly to our audience. So not kind of like picture yourself talking to us here, but to the listener who is driving here or there and or going about their day, like what is something that you could send them off with? Maybe an encouragement or exhortation or just, I mean, even thinking about what it meant for Tommy Smith to sacrifice what he sacrificed and that willingness to sacrifice to make a change are all kind of themes that I've drawn from what you've said so far, but maybe what are some other parting thoughts you would give us? I was going to read a, a, a section, if that, if that would be okay. I would love that. All right. I think this wraps it up pretty good. This is right before and during he received his gold medal. Also, another, another gem that I, I found out while writing this book is that, you know, when he had his fist in the air and his head was bowed and the national anthem was playing, he was actually saying the Lord's Prayer. 
come from a, a very religious family. So I, I try to intersperse that in there as well when the national anthem was playing. But read this, this section right here. This is during the medal ceremony. So I think, you know, the way he ends it really caps up the theme of this book, really. John and I stood there patiently clutching our sneakers in our hands behind our backs with our spirits humbled and our heads bowed. Every chance I got, I say a small prayer. There was no time better than that moment. If your soul wasn't right, you probably couldn't see it, couldn't feel it. All of a sudden, I was aware of everything but afraid of nothing. They called our names one at a time. I leaped on top of the highest platform on that victory stand with the number one placard in front of it and lifted both of my hands toward the heavens. An official in a cherry red blazer slid on the gold medal with the green ribbon around my neck from the cotton fields of Texas and California to an Olympic field in Mexico and a gold medal with a green ribbon around my neck. I had come a mighty long way. It was time. First, there was silence and then the United States National Anthem began to blare across the stadium over our heads, over the stands. John and I shared a pair of black leather gloves. He wore the left one and I had on the right. I clenched that fist with the black glove so tight I could feel my knuckles pop and the tips of my nails pierced my palm. I held it up like a torch, defiant. There was no way I would place my hand over my heart and honor a flag for a country that did not honor me or people who looked like me. I could hear the wind whip around my forearm. My eyes were closed as the anthem went on in the background of my mind. I bowed my hand again and I talked to God. 80 seconds. That's how long we stood there as the anthem played. Those fists in the air were dedicated to everyone at home back in the projects in Chicago, Oakland, and Detroit, to everyone in the boroughs of Queens and Brooklyn, to all of the brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Birmingham, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, St. Louis, New Orleans, to everyone struggling, working their fingers to the bone on farms across America, to everyone holding out hope that things would get better. That was for you from John and me. We had to be seen because we were not being heard. That was the end of the third chapter. Victory stand, raising my fist for justice. Wow. How can we direct our audience to follow you and support you? I mean, obviously, we'll put the link to the book in the show notes, but do you have social media or other places that we can continue to follow you? Yeah, I'm, I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at, at Arthur Derek D. Barnes, all lowercase. And my website is Derek D. Barnes. D is my middle initial, DerekDBarnes.com. Yeah, those, those two places to find me. That's great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and, and yeah, appreciate you bringing to light a, a story that continues to have such value, like you said, such relevance to today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. God bless. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 